Okay, perfect. So hi, everyone, and welcome back to another edition episode podcast, another podcast episode of the BSSH Sport and History podcast. Uh, this is Connor Heffernan, Sky- Zooming in, not Skyping, Zooming in uh, from across the pond in Texas. And I'm very happy to be joined today by Assistant Professor Craig Greenham from the University of Windsor. We're going to be speaking primarily about his latest article in Sport History Review on the Pete Rose betting scandal. But before I suppose we dive into that, I'll ask Craig to maybe introduce yourself and say a few words about your research interests and what brought you to this topic. Well, thank you, Connor, for having me on the podcast. Um, just a little bit about myself. I'm an assistant professor at uh, the University of Windsor in kinesiology. I am one of, I guess, three historians on staff. We, we have kind of an embarrassment of riches, I guess, compared to some kinesiology departments. In terms of my research interests, I consider myself a little bit of a, a polymath in some ways where I don't have a particular deep dive all the time. I go where the curiosities take me and where the invitations come. Sometimes people invite me along on a, on a project and if it's a project I can do justice to, then I'm, I'm happy to join it. Uh, when it comes to, I guess, the field of study that I do, um, I, most of my historical inquiry is, is kind of the recent past things that are still in some ways hot to the touch. I grew up in the 1980s, I was born in 1977. So in, in a lot of ways, I, I try to you know, re-explore some of the things that happened in my childhood and, and you know, kind of reflect and get greater understanding on that. Uh, when it comes to the sports I look at, primarily it's North American team sports, baseball, primarily Canadian football and, uh, and hockey. So first I have to say congratulations on calling yourself a polymath. That's something that I will be stealing. I call myself a mongrel, um, which <laughs> I, I think polymath is something that I, I will uh, take in future, but I'm very much with you on, you know, you, using your position, using your interest to also reevaluate your childhood. So I've recently started to study professional wrestling because I want to understand what I was doing during the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I suppose your curiosity, your polymath uh, approach has taken you to a really interesting place with the latest article, and I'll give the full title, which is Rose-Colored Glasses, Competing Media Perceptions of the Pete Rose Betting Scandal, which was published, I think it was earlier this year, or was it late 2020? I could never keep track, Connor. Yeah, I yeah. mean, time has just melted uh, in such a weird way. It could, it could have been six months ago or six minutes ago. It all feels the same. But Rose-Colored Glasses has just been published recently anyway in Sport History Review, which is looking at different media narratives of the Pete Rose betting scandal. So to, to give you the difficult question, and we were joking about this before, because you yeah. do mention in the article that the Pete Rose betting scandal is a very difficult thing to actually explain simply, but I suppose for people in Britain and Ireland who wouldn't be as familiar with baseball as other people would be. What is a simplified version? What is the difficult thing that you said can't be done um, in explaining the Pete Rose betting scandal for people who are maybe unfamiliar with it? Okay, for those of you out there who who aren't familiar with Pete Rose and and his tarnished legacy, um, you know, Major League Baseball is kind of in an unfortunate position where some of the greatest players to ever have played have been sullied by their own hand. Uh, Steroids, probably something that you're familiar with, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and others. 
But before them, uh, before steroids became a major issue, there were a couple of gambling situations. Uh, the World Series in the early 20th century was thrown by the Chicago White Sox. But more recently in 1989, Pete Rose, who is the all-time hits leader for Major League Baseball, uh, was found to have been gambling on baseball, not just baseball, but Cincinnati Reds games, the team that he had played 19 seasons for and the team that he was currently managing. And Major League Baseball has always come down very, very hard on gamblers. It's essentially a, uh, a lifetime ban or a death sentence in terms of your legacy. And it's something to be avoided for sure. And, uh, you know, when word came out that Pete Rose maybe was gambling on baseball in the spring of, of 1989, there was a, a cover story in Sports Illustrated. Of course, the natural position of the Rose camp was to deny it and uh, put the onus of proof on Major League Baseball to, to prove its case, which eventually it did about six months later. Um, as I said, it's, it's kind of a complicated narrative and there, there's a lot of ins and outs that go into it, but essentially I think that's the nuts and bolts and hopefully your, your British and Irish listeners will have some sense of, of who Pete Rose was and, and what his troubles were, self-inflicted, uh, what his troubles were and uh, my article was, was something that, um, again, you know, kind of re-examining my childhood because I was 12 years old in 1989. And when this all came out, I desperately wanted to believe Pete Rose, desperately. Um, and uh, now I know that, you know, Pete Rose wasn't to be trusted, but, you know, a 12 year old was uh, steeped in qualities, admirable qualities, such as loyalty and, and things like that. You know, I, I, I thought Pete Rose was, was being uh, uh, victimized by a witch hunt, um, clearly not the case. But I, I've always been fascinated too from a, a, a very young age about storytelling. And I think ultimately, Connor, that's what the story is about. It's about storytelling. It's about who tells the story and how the story is told. Yeah, and I think, kind of rolling on from that point something that was really um interesting because i i've come to baseball somewhat late um because now that i'm in the u.s i've realized that maybe it's not so boring after all it can it can be quite good um but so i'm now an avowed baseball fan unfortunately i'm a red sox fan so let's not uh let that sully the conversation but something that was very interesting was just seeing the like demigod you know reputation that Pete Rose had prior to this scandal. So you mentioned how successful he is as a player, but I mean, it really goes into like very hallowed reputation. I'm trying to remember, there's someone who tries to get him uh, classed as an endangered species at one point, isn't yes. there? Yes, yeah, an endangered species. The Cincinnati Zoo would not comply. <laughs> and then they tried to have him dedicated as a historical, but he was only 37 at the time and you had to be 50 years old, like a, a building would have to be 50 years old to be, to receive that designation. That's when he was uh, going to leave his free agency and, and they desperately in Cincinnati didn't want him to leave. Pete Rose was no ordinary player aside from his um, statistical achievements in baseball. If you know much about baseball, it's, it's a game that lives and dies on statistics. But aside from his, his lofty statistical achievements, Pete Rose was Cincinnati born and raised. And from that perspective, uh, you know, I, I think he was afforded a certain amount of protection uh, in this, in the coverage of the scandal by the local media that wouldn't have been afforded to just any player. 
And there have been you know, some studies put forward about how in times of scandal, how in times of crisis, local media tries to protect lo local institutions. And uh, some sports historians have, have discovered that that applies to teams, but nobody's applied it to a player yet. And what do we see how the Cincinnati media treated Pete Rose, you know, giving him the benefit of the doubt, even when he didn't deserve it, we see how that, that protection is extended to players when their connection with the city is significant. And this, and I think you talk about this, really goes like across the political spectrum to in various degrees in Cincinnati, where it's you know typically say conservative or more slightly right-leaning newspapers will be generally quite favorable or at least more empathetic towards Pete Rose, similarly with more working class newspapers. And it's interesting when you see the very you know homegrown local hero, boy done good reputation that he has, that that actually in one sense transcends say political ideologies in that local uh, region. Absolutely. And I think that speaks to the power of sport, you know, like uh, uh, regardless of the political divisions in a city, you know, uh, there tends to be a common rallying point, which is the sports team. And uh, when it came to Pete Rose, you're right, you know, what, there, there are some slight differences in coverage, but the, the Cincinnati Post, which is the, the, the working class newspaper, and the Cincinnati Inquirer, which was a little bit more business minded right wing, uh, they both wanted to believe Pete Rose. And, and the, you know, they demonstrated that in, in several different ways. The one difference I would suppose, or the one difference I would like to make, I suppose, is the fact that the Cincinnati Post, the working class newspaper, probably held closest to the Pete Rose narrative of innocence longer than the Enquirer. And uh, when word came out that Pete Rose was, in fact, you know, suspended for life, um, you know, that instead of looking at Pete as any sort of a degenerate or a criminal or any sort of uh, harsh treatment. They looked at him as Pete the sick and somebody who needed help, not punishment. And in some ways he was the victim of the company he kept, but not necessarily the, the catalyst of trouble himself. Yeah, which uh, is such a fascinating thing because even as you say, even after say the Major League Baseball's report comes out and it's conclusively proven that he has been betting even against his own team. You know, it's amazing that even with all this evidence that he has such social capital, I suppose, within his region or such prestige that there is a level of understanding among the kind of diehard local newspapers, you know, like the Cincinnati Post, that really in other sports or other areas, I mean, it, it's almost inconceivable, like how, how that would happen. Well, one point of clarification I'd like to make, he did bet on Reds games, but there's no evidence to suggest he oh, bet sorry. against the Reds. So I, I you know, it's a, a you know, that, that's fine. It's, it's just something I wanted to point out uh, because it, it sort of uh, brings a little bit of a different implication if he was, if he was yeah, betting against, yeah. Um, you know, when it comes to Pete Rose, one of the interesting things I think is, is this whole idea of wanting to believe in something as well. And I think there's a, a real demonstration in this story too, that, that the local media is sensitive to what the readers want to believe. And the readership, particularly in the Post, but you know, in the Enquirer with the local talk radio stations, they wanted to believe Pete. And I think in some way, Cincinnati media, I don't know if they muzzled themselves or if they, they cognizantly 
you know, try to, to flip the script somehow, or if they were going along for the ride too, it's, it's really difficult to say uh, if you're not necessarily in the newsroom at the time. But, you know, they wanted to give the, the readership, the listenership, uh, the narrative that was most palatable to them. And, and what they wanted was an innocent Pete. And I suppose something to wonder about, you know, on this point of something to believe in. So as I said, I'm very late to baseball, but am I right in saying that the quote unquote, the red machine, you know, the, the Cincinnati team, which wins the world series in 75 and 76, is that the, you know, one of the more recent times that Cincinnati has experienced great success. Is that the first major success in their history? Like, I'm just wondering, you know, is this, he's part it's, of it. It's, it's certainly the high point. Uh, yeah, you okay. know, it's not the only time that, that Cincinnati's won the World Series, but it's the only time that they've won back-to-back World Series and uh, certainly represents a high point for the Reds. And I dare say, Connor, a high point for the city. And I, I think, you know, um, when we look at civic boosterism and those sorts of um, mechanisms, uh, team success plays really big in terms of civic feel. And I think at no point in Cincinnati history was there that, you know, um, optimism um, and, and uh, satisfaction, like when the big red machine was at its height. Yeah, and I think it, there is something very interesting. And baseball actually seems to be quite a nice lightning rod for like civic pride and, you know, city pride or region-wide. Like I know... In a, in a previous life, I was in Boston um, soon after the horrific marathon bombings and Big Poppy, uh-huh. the, the Red Sox player, yes. says, this is our effing city. That's and right. Th- then, you know, in six months' time, there's Big Poppy posters everywhere. And he seems to be, uh, sorry, I'm using poster too much, but he's almost the poster boy then for this kind of resurgent, you know, resistant, resilient Boston. So it's interesting that baseball seems to be like quite an, a neat way of tapping into civic pride or your brain, you know, a communal spirit. Yeah. And, and I think too, what Pete Rose represents, as I mentioned before, like he, he wasn't just a Cincinnati Reds player, but he was born and raised in Cincinnati and therefore, you know, demonstrated all the sensibilities and sensitivities of a Cincinnatian. Uh, he grew up on that West, the, the West side, which was, you know, kind of hard scrabble. And, and, you know, there, there was a, a lot of, civic investment in Rose, that he was doing well, not just for the Reds, but on, you know, the league-wide stage, I think that just made him extra special. Like what I think of a lot of the, you know, I think that's part of the reason why Cavaliers fans were so scorned when LeBron James left the first time, you know, like it wasn't just that he was a transformational player, but he was from nearby Akron. You know, you're one of us. What are you doing? You know, you're, you're abandoning us. Like there's a certain a certain difference about somebody who plays in their backyard. Yeah, and I, I suppose we've done a, a great job of talking about Pete Rose's importance and the support he was given in Cincinnati. We should maybe move on to the other side of that coin, which is something that the article does so wonderfully, which is looking at narrative and counter-narrative. So we have the Cincinnati newspapers with varying levels of support kind of standing behind their man i think what's interesting in the article is you take one of the like behemoths of american publishing which is the new york times pardon me i'm wondering could you explain maybe their position and how they contrasted with the cincinnati newspapers yeah i I just felt it was really important for the article to include an outside voice 
And one of the challenges of that, Connor, was how many outside voices do I include? Right. And, and ultimately, I, I limited it to one, the New York Times. Uh, my whole endeavor was to be as comprehensive as possible. And I felt if I spread myself too thin, I would lose myself. Uh, so what I did is I, I limited it to the New York Times, but I, I picked the Times with, with purpose. It wasn't just the fact that it is a behemoth. I think that helps, but because there's a multiplier effect, what, what runs in the Times runs elsewhere. But the other thing about the New York Times that, that to me seemed interesting as well, not that it provides any sort of baseline for objectivity, no newspaper does that, but represents in some ways the voice of the commissioner's office. We have a very elegant commissioner at the time. His reign was very short because he died of a heart attack shortly after he handed down his punishment to Pete Rose, but he was a very elegant commissioner, a former, former president of Yale, uh, somebody who had uh, an eloquence about them, somebody who enjoyed a special relationship with the New York Times uh, in terms of you know, offering them exclusives and, and things of that nature. Um, so I, I really felt like in order to understand what's happening with the Cincinnati media, we have to include an outside voice. And one of the things too that the New York Times does is the scandal comes to a boil is they hire a freelancer by the name of Lonnie Wheeler, who I think is recently deceased. And Lonnie went, he, he was somebody with Cincinnati uh, roots. He, he worked uh, for both of those papers at different points in his career, but he was giving New York readers a sense of what this scandal was like on the ground. And uh, to me, that was a really interesting thing to do. And of course, the New York Times has the resources to make this happen. But I think when the New York Times did that, you know, they, they acknowledged that this is, this is, you know, a national story, but, you know, it has a different local flavor to it. And uh, the readers need to, to hear about that. And I suppose when you're looking at um, the Times coverage versus the Cincinnati coverage, is there ever a sense that they're speaking against one another or, you know, speaking toward what the other is saying? Or is this very much to use a, you know, modern parlance like echo chambers, you know, between what's going on in Cincinnati and then what's going on, say, within New York? Yeah, so, so the New York Times, for the most part, had a, a different approach to the Pete Rose story. Um, and it's not that they were keen to throw Pete under the bus, uh, but they looked at Pete as a little bit more objectively, perhaps, than the Cincinnati uh, media could, because you know, there wasn't that pre-existing, long-standing relationship. So, you know, when it came to the New York Times and New York being a base, you mentioned Boston, but New York is, is the mecca of baseball. And I think for the readership of the New York Times, as well as the Times itself, more than protecting Pete, they wanted to protect baseball. And what was good for baseball was, was, was um, the most prominent or deserved the most prominent coverage. And, and you know, the, the uh, coverage needed to be flavored accordingly. So, you know, there wasn't that sort of wide berth given to Pete in the New York Times. Um, and, you know, when it came to decision day or judgment day or punishment day or D-Day or however you want to look at it in, in August 1989, the New York Times did not pull any punches, but I don't get the sense for a second that they reveled in Pete's punishment. Because as I said, you know, for its readership, you know, in the Mecca of baseball, it was a sad 
day for baseball. And I think they were mad at Pete, but they were also more than that heartbroken by his bad decisions. And they didn't want to be right on Pete, I don't think, right? There's a cost sometimes to that. And yeah, there, there was certainly a, a, difference, a difference in coverage, a difference in position when it came to how they were going to cover the Rose scandal. And looking at the narratives related to that then, I suppose you're stepping one, you're going one step back, pardon me, in the article where you're saying, well, what are the, the goals and the objectives of, say, these newspapers, also within relation to their readership and you know, their connections. So it is interesting that the Times, as you say, has this association with, you know, the establishment is too conspiratorial a word, but you know, with the baseball kind of authorities and just how that really does shape and you know, change how these things are looked at. Because I think this is something that, you know, when I was telling you before we started recording with my students, it's a really wonderful example of looking at how the same event in sport can have really different reporting outcomes depending on where you're looking at. I suppose, is that something that, you know, you went into the article knowing that, well, Cincinnati will obviously be backing this guy the whole time and New York, you know, will take this more objective stance or is that something that kind of evolved as the research was playing out? No, that, that evolved. Um, I'm, I'm not from Cincinnati. Um, I've spent a couple of nights in Cincinnati. I've driven through Cincinnati, but I, I'm not from Cincinnati. So I, I, I did I never for a second did I really feel like I, I uh, had a preconceived notion about how that local media would treat its athletes. You know, part of me wondered if it was going to be harder on Pete because he embarrassed the city. Um, but that never manifested. Um, you know, at no point did they, did they for his head on a pike? Um, it, you know, it seemed like there was a lot of uh, understanding, even when his guilt became undeniable. Uh, so when it came to, you know, approaching this, I, as much as possible, I, I wanted to come in um, and let the evidence speak for itself. And, uh, you know, I just kind of went through the newspapers chronologically and, and, you know, with a thematic analysis in mind. And it was really interesting how it kind of evolved. And, you know, after I did the, the data collection and went through the research and did some coding, I was, I was trying to think, okay, well, what's the story here? Like, how does this all come together? And then, you know, it just kind of clicked. It just kind of clicked. And what made it click, I think, to Connor was the fact that this was like a six-month saga. And there wasn't one story to tell. There were several stories to tell. And that's part of the reason why I broke up into three phases. You know, the first phase was, you know, the announcement of the commissioner's office that they were looking into Pete and, and these allegations. And, and, you know, the public was being introduced to some of these principal players like Pete's, you know, bookie and, you know, some of the people behind the allegations. And then the second phase was about the, the Dowd report, which was commissioned by the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Bart Giamatti, uh, which was the, the primary weapon of evidence against Pete. And uh, we also see at this point too, Pete tries some legal maneuvers to try to grind this to a halt. And it's a very adversarial in that second phase, you know, this sort of Giamatti versus Rose. And then the third phase is, is August when, when you know, it's all coming to a boil and, you know, the, the outcome isn't good for Pete. And, you know, I think when we look over the course of that trajectory, it gave my 
my research that sort of meaning, I suppose. And I think it, it throughout it, you do get to see these separate camps, so to speak, in the kind of media landscape. And another area which you look at and something that, you know, having grown up, I've never called in, thankfully, but having grown up with like local talk radio, this is something that you bring in looking at. I think it's Bob Trumpy. And then there's another um, radio station whose name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, think for, uh, I forget. So, yeah, there's several call numbers. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, that that's an interesting part, too. And again, it speaks to this whole idea about storytelling, Connor. I think, you know, who's telling the story and, and, and how they're telling it. So, and again, I'm probably going to script the call numbers, but I think it's WLW with Bob yes, Trumpy. Yeah. And, and, you know, Bob Trumpy did a regular installment with Pete Rose. Uh, and so there was, a, you know, this established friendship between the two. But, he, you know, he swore up and down about Rose, Rose's innocence, that Rose could never possibly be involved. He took, he took that to a, a national audience, he had a, a spot on CBS's morning program and said the same thing there. And you got to remember too, WLW at the time, they had the Reds games, they had the, the exclusive broadcasting rights. So there was a little bit of an interest there to protect uh, the Reds and, and, and Rose by extension. Now, some of the other radio stations, they were a little bit more punchy, a little bit more liberal uh, with, with you know, their interpretation. But you know, again, too, when the, when the hammer came down on Pete, they kind of pulled back from some of the mockery and some of those other things that, that you know, sometimes talk radio is known for. And uh, because they understand, right, the, the local sense, a lot of their listeners really like Pete. And, and you know, taking any sort of jabs at them is, is just, it's not going to play well. Yeah, so you can see the tail wagging the dog, you know, to a certain yeah. extent, but especially... So even more so when you're thinking about uh, talk radio, especially local talk radio, is you know there's a certain amount of pandering is maybe too strong a word, but you really you, you have to know what buttons to press and then what to pull back on. I think it was interesting to see the interaction between media forms here as well, because you you will have your local newspapers, you'll have your local radio, you'll have your national papers, you'll have your sporting magazines, you'll have your national uh, television as well. And they're all sort of speaking to each other in various forms. You know, this kicks off with Sports Illustrated, which is a magazine that is being played out in the newspapers, obviously televisions there as well, and then local radio. I think it's very impressive that you've managed to cut some sort of clarity out in that, because something that I joke about with my students is, you know, God love anyone studying sport in the age of Twitter, because you're going to have to go through, you know, thousands of tweets to actually get some sort of narrative. So was that a difficult thing to do to try and, you know, looking at even then a very vast media landscape and zoning in on what you wanted? Well, you know, I, I was very fortunate, as I said, you know, I'm not from Cincinnati um, and I don't live in Cincinnati, but I'm not far from Cincinnati. And if need be, you know, I, I could have uh, spent more time there in terms of combing archival material. But thankfully, you know, the Cincinnati Public Library is really generous with their resources and their ability to distribute those resources, uh, you know, wholesale in a lot of cases to, to researchers. I was, I was blown away. I thought, geez, there's not many libraries that would do that. And essentially what it was, was it was just kind of, you know, collecting, archiving, sifting through, you know, just kind of that bread and butter historical research. And, um, 
you know, your listeners wouldn't know this about me, I don't imagine, but there was a time when I was a journalist and I think there's a, there's an element of journalism that remains in my DNA. I don't know that, you know, you ever really become an ex-journalist. And that's why some of my inquiries are, are, are quite media heavy. And I think in some ways too, it allows me to sort of parse through some of these things, uh, understand the terminology, having, you know, practiced it, uh, you know, knowing what, how a story is constructed, uh, the role of a newsroom, an editor, a copy desk, Voices a journalist makes, you know, we, we probably talk about this all the time, Connor, with our students is, you know, the, the choices a researcher makes, the same can be said with, with journalism. And, you know, I think it was the old publisher of the Washington Post said, you know, journalism is the first draft of history. So there's, there is a connection between, between the two. And uh, one thing that I've just realized that we haven't talked about in terms of how these narratives were shaped is really the role that Pete Rose had. So obviously he has this, you know, golden position and reputation in Cincinnati prior to prior to the betting scandal coming out. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, he still his reputation's a little bit more difficult to pin down. And you talk about this in the kind of close of the article, some of which is quite nefarious on his part, but uh, that's for a different podcast, I suspect. So what role does Pete Rose have then in trying to keep hold of the narrative or push a certain narrative yeah um, and how does that how does that evolve so first as you said he tries to grind it to a halt legally um and but then after that where does it go does he step out of the equation and let others come in or is he trying to twist and turn uh well, the messages? ultimately what ends up happening is he would have continued to pursue you know the legal means but i think ultimately he was unsure of the outcome if he kept up with that and Financially, it was becoming a burden. And I think Pete realized that, you know, he needed to bring this to a resolution. And one of the interesting things about Pete Rose in in the judgment that comes out in August with this plea deal that he reaches with the commissioner of Major League Baseball is there's never an admission of guilt. Uh, which, which was such, and I, I like 12 year old Craig, I could not understand that Pete, if you're not guilty, because he maintained that line, he maintained it all the way to 2003 or 2004. Right. Uh, so, you know, he never, he never, ever, ever conceded that he, or that he was guilty or confessed to anything. Uh, but he reached a plea, a plea agreement. Um, he made sure that everybody knew that he could apply for reinstatement. Um, Pete, you know, for somebody with a, a fairly simple education, I think he really understood media narrative very well. And what ends up happening when Pete loses the narrative, right? You know, the, the, the punishment comes out, uh, he maintains his innocence, yet he accepts the punishment and the baffled looks by everybody with this outcome it's, it's at this time, now, mind you, this book was in the works before that, but, it, you know, shortly thereafter, uh, he comes out with a, a, a biography or an autobiography, I guess, in some way, written by Roger Kahn, who's a famous baseball writer, but Pete is working with him, you know, uh, uh, stride for stride in this whole thing. And I think, you know, Pete tries to use his book as kind of a an opportunity to wrestle away the narrative, something that he had lost. And uh, 
you know, whether that was successful, it's, it's really, it's really hard to know. Um, as I said, you know, Pete ultimately gave way and, and confessed in 2003 or 2004 with, with another autobiography that he did in fact gamble on, on Cincinnati Reds games. But, you know, I, I think Pete, like Pete was such a competitive baseball player, Connor, such a competitive, and I, I have to think that bled over into other parts of his life. And I just don't think he wanted to be beaten on this. And, and, and the thing is too, like Pete was, he was so aware of his stature in the game, because as I said, you know, it's, it's, it's there for everybody to see from a statistical perspective. Right. And, and to know that that all was slipping through his fingers. I, I think, I think it must've terrified him. And as a final question, I suppose, or, um, second last question, um, something that, you mentioned again near the end is that there seems to be this schism or this split now in say 2021 almost you know can we can we separate the art from the artist sort of thing where they're saying you know let's focus on pete rose the ball player rather than pete rose say post 1989 they even have a statue of pete rose now so there, there does in in one sense is that a kind of natural result of what your article is talking about where there is this narrative in cincinnati where it's you know homeboy done good we feel sorry for him, but God, what a player. Let's, let's maybe push to the side of our mind the more nefarious or unpleasant aspects of that career. Is that something that maybe explains in part why now there is an appreciation for him, the player, without encompassing, say, everything that he did? Yeah, I think some people want to believe that. Connor. Um, and uh, to be honest with you, I, I don't know how I feel about Pete Rose. I, I don't. I, you know, I went back and forth on this, but I, I think that's part of it. And if, if you remember, or if, if the readers or, or, or listeners, I should say, uh, end up picking up my article, you'll notice that uh, the day of the decision, and this came from the New York Times, this didn't come from uh, the Cincinnati newspapers, but it came from George Vesey of the, of the New York Times. And the day of the decision, he ripped Pete. He ripped him hard. And then the next day, it's almost like he felt remorseful, uh, almost like he had, you know, uh, uh, you know, given a wedgie to the patron saint of baseball or something like that. He, did, he, he felt awful. And, and he wrote like it was a total 180 the next day, his column, a total 180. And, you know, he said he encouraged his readers to forget their new knowledge of Pete, to remember that sort of you know, bulldog mug and, you know, diving headfirst into third base and all, all those sorts of things. It's so hard to know. It's so hard to know, Connor. Like, wh what do we want in our sports heroes? What do we want? You know, I, I think there was a time when we wanted this very simple, you know, wholesome, uh, you know, uh, product. But now, now I'm not so sure, you know, when you, and we were talking about television shows before, we went on air with this podcast. You know, every TV show it seems features an antihero, a very, a very, you know, uh, a, somebody who is amicable or somebody that we can cheer for. But it's like our our whole framing of heroes has changed, and I think now we have an understanding about Pete. You know that that he, you know, he's a very complicated person, and you know, his legacy is very complicated. And yes, it would be neat and tidy if, if, or it would be nice if it was neat and tidy, we could just square it away and say he's one of the greatest baseball players of all time. But I, I think, you know, we've just become very used to navigating these sticky situations. 
And we're seeing it now to play out in, in other areas of social life where, you know, people are once revered and then they say something inappropriate. And where, where does that leave us feeling about that person, right? Um, do we just turn the page on them? Do we somehow try to explain it away? Do we give them a second chance? You know, do they need to apologize? Does that a, apology have to contain certain elements in order to pass muster? I don't know. I don't know. But it just seems like we're, we're living, you know, uh, you know, we're living at a time right now where I'm not sure what, where we are when it comes to heroes, what we want. And, and uh, I guess redemption is part of that as well. Uh, you, um, you reminded me of a, possibly one of my favorite sporting quotes, the Charles Barkley, I'm not a role model, raise your own damn kids. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, even at the time, that was uh, early 1990s. Uh, yeah, that's right. It, it, was a, it was a Nike ad. And, uh, you know, um, I, I think there was, there was a certain acceptance of that then. You know, I, I know it was a controversial, you know, commercial by Nike, but, you know, I think there was some acceptance that, you know, heroes, heroes are maybe changing a little bit. And, you know, like the, the Raiders and the bad boys and some of these, you know, like we started embracing some of these, these villains. And, you know, you and I were talking pre-podcast about professional wrestling. Like I'm a little older than you. I grew up in the eighties. You were talking about professional wrestling in the nineties, but you know, the heels, the bad guys, they, they were some of the most likable of, of the promotions. Like I remember macho man, Randy Savage being a, an absolute fan favorite, but he was dastardly as they come. Right. Yeah, so maybe uh, professional sport has become a bit more professional wrestling than, uh, than people would care to realize. Maybe. So uh, as a very final question, because as I said, I'm aware that everyone is tired and doesn't have time and we don't really know what time is anymore. Um, what's next when things, I suppose, settle down? Or do you, do you have anything in mind? Do you think you'll continue in this vein looking at, say, media narratives around baseball yeah. prophecies or... Where, where do you think you may head to next? So one of the, uh, the articles that uh, I've recently completed and sent out for submission, it, it, it looks at um, not an athlete, but the wife of an athlete. Um, so when Wayne Gretzky was traded by the, the Edmonton Oilers to the Los Angeles Kings, it was seen here in Canada as this huge national calamity. And when something of this magnitude happens, somebody is to blame. And Wayne Gretzky's new wife seemed to shoulder a lot of that blame, even though she had absolutely nothing to do with it. And the Canadian media, and she was American, and it was around the time of the free trade agreement, and all that. Oh, man, did they go after her hardcore. So uh, in, in some ways, you know, I, I'm continuing with some of that, that media analysis. Uh, but you know, as I said, Connor, like I, I'll, I'll read something or I'll listen to something or I'll watch something. And then I'll go, Hmm, is there a story there? Or is there a project there? And then, you know, like a dog chasing a car away I go. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think, as I said before, the fact that I'm a former journalist, I'll always maintain some kind of interest in, in media and media studies. But uh, I've, I've, I've got various interests and, and uh, I think that's one of the great things about our jobs is we get to pursue those things. And uh, you know, I'm, what I'm interested in now maybe isn't what I'm interested in in two years time. And I think what a, what a, great, what a great occupation we have that we get to, to explore those things.
I'm relearning my vocabulary. So that is the sign of a great polymath and not of a great mongrel um, <laughs> because one is far more respectful than the other. So thank you again, Craig. Uh, where can listeners reach you if they want to learn more about your research or learn anything more about the article? Is there anywhere to direct them? Uh, in terms of like an email address? Uh, or, or I suppose if you don't want to give that, we could just say the University of Windsor, they can find you through their webpage. Is that right? A absolutely. Absolutely. All right, perfect. So I will sign off by saying thank you again for this. Um, the article, let me pull up the name of cl closed too many tabs today. Nope, you did not publish on Greek athletics. Uh, there's my polymath showing. Um, so it's called Rose-Colored Glasses, and I have shamefully just gotten that pun. Kudos to you, sir. Rose-Colored Glasses, comp Competing Media Perceptions of the Pete Rose Betting Scandal, which has been published in Sport History Review. So Craig, thank you again for a really interesting conversation. And this will be Warmly appreciated, I know, by the BSSH listeners. Well, thank you for having me, Connor. Mm -hmm.